And today we're talking about the dedication that Solomon gave for the temple. In 1 Kings 8, um, it says that he, he gathered everybody from around the country, all the who's who of Israel, brought them in together, would have sounded the horn for the assembly, and prepared to dedicate the, the temple itself. Are you ready for those? I'll do those right away. You can see the silver trumpets and the harp. Uh, it's a 22-string harp that would be used. Um, um, they use two different types of horns for, for assembly. One, just like the shofar, for day of atonement, for, for calls to, to gather. And, but a lot of times they would use these right here. And then this is for the music, for the, for the worship times. They had a, a choir that they put together in the temple, and they would use 22-string harps. Go ahead. This is a, a, a smaller one. Um, I don't remember how many strings this has. Um, um, they use two different kinds of, of harps, uh, lyres, small ones, Seven strings, which was common, uh, David used, and he he was instrumental in getting those started. And uh, we know in, in the future, when the temple is set up uh, for his kingdom, it talks about ten-string uh, harps. So there's another example, different kind that's that's uh, been made. Um, the shofars they would use for temple worship, for calls for different things. You can see some of the... Um, uh, handiwork on it, the gold and, and, and the lettering. You can see the Hebrew letters on it. Go ahead. Um, this is a, a, a labor for, for water, for different, for washing. Um, there are all kinds of different tools that are used throughout the thing. The shovel, uh, that was made and, and there's all kinds of neat design on it, but it's just basically used to empty ash and, 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 uh, cow parts. Um, from the altar. <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, the menorah, uh, seven uh, uh, candlestick, seven layer, or seven uh, tier. Um, that's this sits outside of the temple wall today, and uh, uh, beautiful. Just I mean, it just shines. And during the day, the the sun shines off the gold. It's just gorgeous, and it's really neat, neat, neat picture. Keep going. Um, this is a one artist rendition of the temple itself. Um, you see the temple mount is the big square portion. And uh, um, there are lots of entrances into the temple mount. You come in through the doorway. This is the, the court of the women. You come in through this doorway. It's the court of the priests. You have the altar. You have, uh, you can see a picture of how he put it here. You'll have a... Um, Big bowl, basin for washing. You walk through this, uh, temple's day, uh, Solomon's day, big cedar doors, big columns, 24 pomegranates on each side of these columns at the top, all layered in gold. The temple was layered in gold. And in fact, uh, 1 Kings 6 says the entire temple was overlaid in gold. I don't know if that means the whole thing or highlights or nobody really knows. It's, it's just kind of a, uh, a guess at this point. This is one artist's rendition. You walk in through into this part. Only the priest can go in here. And you have the uh, on the left side is the menorah. On the right side is the table of showbread. And out in front of you, 
Right in here, uh, out in front of a curtain, would be the altar of incense. You have the curtain, and beyond that is the Holy of Holies, where God resided, where the ark was stationed. Um, no windows anywhere in this thing. No exterior light came in. The only thing that lit the place was that one menorah. Go ahead. This is uh, another rendition, artist rendition of it. And you can see some of the... Uh, I put included this one because of the gold. And this is a description of Solomon's... the bowl that was used to wash for the priests. It said there were 12 bowls, three facing in each direction, that held up this giant... 12 bulls that held up the bowl... <laughs> so that's that's uh, one artist's rendition of, of how that worked and uh, what they used go ahead and then uh, here's another idea where you can see into the grounds type of idea you can see in comparison how small the people would be this portion itself was 100 feet in height Jerusalem sat up on a hill and there are other some other hills around it but this is one of the highest spots in the area. And the Temple Mount was placed on it. And then they placed this temple, uh, Solomon placed this temple right in the center of that Temple Mount, overlaid it in gold. Now during the day in, uh, in Jerusalem, um, it, we don't, they don't get weather like we do here. Okay, When clouds come in and it rains, they're in and they're out. Fifteen minutes, that's maybe it. The rest of the time it's just sunny. All the time. So you can see... If all this was overlaid in gold during the day, that'd be quite a spectacle. Can you imagine if, if you're someone that's going to worship and you're coming from a distance and you're going to worship God because you believe in Jehovah. And from a distance, this is what you're going to see shining in the sun. Just this glowing. And as you get closer and closer to the presence of God, the excitement builds and the worship, your, your attitude of worship builds. And I think that's a great picture of what happens with us. As we get closer and closer to God, our worship builds, the excitement builds. And uh, I'm sure many of you have been around people that you've seen really grow and grow closer to God. And you can see the excitement in their life and how much they just enjoy being around God and God's people. And that's what people would have experienced as they were coming to this temple. First um, Kings chapter 8 is where we're going to be. I want to lay just a quick groundwork here. Um, first, first Kings, the entire first half of First Kings is all about Solomon. Um, chapters one and two, um, Jim dealt with last week. It's about Solomon being appointed king, solidifying his kingdom. Um, chapters three and four were about, were about the wisdom of Solomon um, and the administration of his kingdom. Chapters five and six are dealt solely with the construction of the temple and what all was, what all he was doing. Uh, chapter 7, um, very long chapter, except for just a couple of verses that talk about Solomon's house. All the rest of them are dealing with the, the furnishings of the temple. And then we come to chapter 8. This is done. And it's over. This is, this is the apex of Solomon's career as king. Because in chapter 9, it immediately goes into... Um, after God talks to him one more time, he gets involved in starting into disobedience and idolatry. And from that point on, there's a decline. So we're at the apex. And Solomon is, is just excited about what he's done. This has taken 20 years for Solomon to have built. 
And that's considering that a great deal of materials David already provided for him. But it took 20 years for him to construct and get constructed all this. And he had tens of thousands of people working on this for 20 years. So that's where we're at when we come to uh, chapter 8. Um, there's several pictures of uh, the reason I think that uh, God put so much of, of Solomon in here wasn't because he was just this great godly man. Um, spends a lot of time with a lot of godly men painting pictures. Um, but Solomon gives us a real picture of Christ. Everything in Scripture is always pointing us to Christ. And Solomon gives us a great picture of Christ. It, Jim talked last week about his wisdom. And in 1 Corinthians uh, 1 verse 30, it says Christ Jesus was made the wisdom of God for us. And so that's a picture for us. The, the, the glory, uh, his temple was really close, or his temple, his uh, palace was really close by. And it, was, it took him 13 years to build his palace. The glory and the fame and the honor that was given to um, uh, Solomon uh, is a picture of Christ in, in his kingdom, of the glory and the honor that he will be given. Um, you can see comparisons of that. Um, I wrote them down so I can remember. Daniel 7, Zechariah 2. Um, Solomon's rule during his time was uh, um, it brought knowledge to the kingdom, it brought peace, it brought worship. And that's a picture of Christ's millennial kingdom that's going to bring knowledge and peace and worship. We see those in places like Micah 4 and Isaiah 2. Um, but the Jews, and, and sometimes us, when we see things like this, we want to get into them, we dig into them, and we want to lift them a little bit higher than we should. It's still all about Jesus. And the Jews sometimes would forget it's about the Messiah. And they would lift this up. And uh, Jesus himself, they were trying to do that when he was here. And they, they'd say that, well, if you'd been here during Solomon's temple, you know, that was beautiful, that was glorious. And, he, and Jesus said, uh, Matthew 12, when he was dealing with this, and now one greater than Solomon is here. And many of them missed it. So we come to 1 Kings chapter 8. And the very first two, two verses of chapter 8, uh, we won't read those. Um, he just brings the people together. He's calling them together for a special service. And from verses 3 through verse 9, it talks about the ark being brought up. Somebody read verses uh, 3 through 8 for me, would you? Anybody? So they have this ceremony to bring the ark where it's been sitting to residing to sit in the back of this, of the temple itself. 
And I read numerous translations, and I didn't really get a good understanding of much of any of them about what they did with the ark. Um, in King James, um, it says that, that the staves were drawn out. It doesn't mean they were removed, but they were pulled to one side and they stuck way out. They stuck clear out partially into the holy place, not through the curtain, but pushing on the curtain. An old Jewish writer, an old Jewish writer, old Jewish writings, it says they stuck out like the breasts of a woman. It wasn't trying to make anything sexual about it, but it was trying to say this was, this was a thing of beauty to recognize that God was there behind that curtain. Um, what they did was they took, they, ha they had those poles that they carried it by. Well, they drew them all to one side and they stuck out front. And when I started looking, I was like, I, I don't, I don't get it. I don't understand. And almost everybody with a few variations said a lot of the same thing. In this temple itself, the light, the only light, was a menorah. The entire temple. Kind of an eerie look as you, as you go in to see seven candles flickering. But the ark was on the other side of this thick curtain that they had. They didn't hold it open so the guy could do it. He would go in, no torch, no lamp, into this darkness. In Psalm 97 2, it's describing God and it says, clouds and darkness are round about him. Um, there was this darkness in there. The only time that they would go in, one time a year, the high priest would go in to offer up, put blood on the mercy seat for the sins of the nation. So the high priest, at the time that they would go in there, what it did was it provided uh, two things. One, a reminder. this If we ever have to move this, they're there. We, we don't want to put them in some other room. We don't want to you know, forget how we're supposed to do it and just pick it up. Okay, they're a constant reminder. But secondly, he could go behind that curtain and follow the curtain across and get to those staves and walk between those staves all the way up to the mercy seat and do what he needed to do. It's kind of a guide um, for him. Because the only other thing in there, in verses 10 and 11, says the glory of God came down, the Shekinah glory, and it filled the place. And it says the priest had to leave in verses 10 and 11. So it would be the high priest and God and this darkness that just surrounded this thickness. And uh, it was an om uh, ominous uh, experience, I am sure, for the high priest each time he did it. Um, in fact, in later years, um, they realized that, that they had to start tying bells to the, to the hem of their garment and a, and a rope to their leg in case suddenly it became very quiet and they were wondering, did God strike him dead? Did he not do it right? And so they had a way to get him out without going in there. Um, so it was, a, it, was a very, uh, it was a very different type of experience, not something that, that we experience here. In uh, verses 12 to 21, someone read verse 12 for me. Read verse 12 and verse 15. 12 and 15. Okay, no, that, that's good enough. Solomon breaks out into preaching here and preaching 
I mean, he's got this big congregation of who's who in, in Israel. And he just starts preaching about... Uh, and at first glance, when I first read it, I thought, he's just kind of bragging. He's just saying, look what I've done. But he's saying, look what God has done. Look what he's used me, but look what God has done here. And he starts getting a little excited about it. And he starts t telling the people, reminding them, this is, a, this is a fulfillment of prophecy. God promised this before I was born to my father. This is what he's going to do. And it's here and it's done. God will always do what he says he's going to do. And he was getting kind of excited about that. This is a fulfillment of prophecy. And so he talks to the crowd. He reminds them of that. And then he goes into prayer. Um, I got two verses I need somebody to read for me. Verse 22 and verse 54. Okay, verse 54. He started praying. And he started praying before the people and before God as his appointed task to dedicate the altar. 30-some verses later of constant prayer. This is his prayer. And we find him on his knees praying to God. And he gets up. And God was moving him. And he was touching his heart during this time. And he spends this long time of prayer. Um, and he says basically the same thing. There's one theme throughout the whole thing. And that's... He starts out right, right in verse... Um, at the beginning in verse 23, and he says, we have a God of mercy. The God of mercy has to be a God of mercy because he forgives sins. Because we are sinners and he is not. And so he starts saying, we have this God of mercy. And what he has done for us, he delivered us. He forgave us. He's delivered us in this room. He's forgiven us. What he continues to do, ten times he says, when someone turns to your temple and prays, Please, God, hear them. Hear them. Hear them. Hear them, God. Over and over. God is a God who forgives. Over and over and over and over. And he says in the future, when your people repent, hear them. God is still going to forgive. And that's the theme of this entire 30 verses of prayer that he gives. This long prayer. Is God is a God of forgiveness. And he's going to do that. And he has done that. And he'll continue to do that. And we come, he finishes his prayer in verse 54. And in verse 55 through 61, he goes back to preaching a little bit. Um, someone read verses 57 and 58 for me. This whole passage, this six verses, when he, he, he ties it up, this is the tying up of the service here. And he tells the people, he says, what we need to do is we need to walk with God. But it's not 
our effort. What we just read. It's God doing it through us. There are a lot of great men listed in the Bible. Um, people that, men that walked, men and women that walked with God, that were friends with God, that were men after God's own heart. But it wasn't because they were perfect. It was because when they, when they sinned, when they fell, they didn't stay down. They got up. They said, God, I've messed up. Forgive me. And they yielded to God and they moved on. That's what made them good men and women, good faithful servants. And, and uh, so the verse 58 is really key in talking about it, it's God that does the work in us. And we just got to learn how to yield to him because we want to get in that way and kind of help him a little bit. And uh, so um, he finishes up his service, his sermon, his prayer, verses 62 to 66. Um, someone read 66 for me, would you? People got excited. They had a seven-day-long party and went and broke up and then continued to party for seven days after that in their own homes. Uh, they gave this great sacrifice and then they just rejoiced. Why'd they do this? The king got excited. He got excited about what God was doing, about being a part of what God was doing. Um, the very short time that I uh, tried to be involved in sales. Um, the one thing, barely one thing I remember about that is they said 10% is your knowledge of the product. The other 90% is excitement. Because excitement's what sells. Um, I've known Josh and Katie a while. Katie is a salesperson, and she's always got that excitement about her. And, and it's great to be around her. You want to be around that. The king here, Solomon, he got excited. And it was contagious. He was excited about God, about what he was doing. We each have different influences, different circles of influence. In your circle of influence, do you draw people to God or do you push them away? Pastor says all the time, it's boring to, to go to church. It's exciting to worship. It's exciting to get involved with God. Um, that's what he did. He got excited. And people followed his lead, and they got excited. And that's what this story's talking about. We finish up in chapter 9, and basically God comes to him, and he reiterates the Davidic covenant. He says, um, in fact, I want somebody to read that. Verses 4 and 5. Someone read those for me. hardly move. <laughs> um, Davidic covenant. This is like the key to all persons. When it's talking about all the kings after that, um, if you obey, if you walk like David did, God will bless. 
In fact, this is this is a, a very um, key to the old te- the entire Old Testament. Um, we can even make a link to us because God wants us, just like David, to walk and seek and search the heart of God, to walk after that, to walk in integrity and righteousness and holiness. And when when His people do that, He blesses. And this is a key. This is the key to the entire book um, um, of First and Second Kings, really. So God gives this. I'm going to make an application now. Seems kind of early, but I don't want to finish there. Here's the application. First, God is faithful. He's always going to do what He says He's going to do. Okay. Secondly, God desires our worship. Um, he is worthy. He deserves it. Considering what he's done. Um, think about the whole forgiveness issue. Man, you want to fall in love with God? Focus on the, what God has done for you. How he's forgiven you. Where you'd be without him. And that will just give you a joy. Um, thirdly, it's all about Jesus. Always will be. And uh, um, everything in scripture kind of points us to that. The, the reason I share the application so early is because a lot of times I get um, I get fascinated with some of this stuff. And everybody doesn't. Um, some people get bored with it. They get into Scripture and start reading. They're like, okay, he built this and he built this. And this is exciting. you know. Okay, what's the point? The point's still Jesus. There's th- three things why I think it's important that we need to focus and learn about the temple. Um, again, past, present, and future type activities. Uh, first of all, this temple that Solomon built, it's like this big neon sign in the Old Testament that says, it's Jesus. It's about Jesus. It's about the Messiah. For them, they should see the Messiah and recognize when He comes because this is all about Him. When you come into the temple, one entrance all the way to his presence. One way in, one way out. Jesus said, I am the door. There's only one way to heaven. No one comes to the Father but by him. When you come into the, the priest, you see the altar. It's in here. The first thing you come to is the altar. Uh, Hebrews, all through Hebrews, talks about Jesus being our sacrifice. He paid that price. We are an unholy people, and God is holy, and we can't get to Him except that blood be shed. When people went into this place, men would go in here, and it wasn't the priest that killed the sacrifice. You walked in with your your cow, you slit its throat. Sin is messy. Now the priest cut it up, and they would have all kinds of things out here, and there are pictures of those where they have it, you know, they had to cut it all up and prepare it and everything else. But you cut the throat. Because when you offered up that sin, you recognize this is a messy job. The sin is messy. You come to the bowl, the bowl that, that we showed you, the big giant bowl, because you have to be cleansed to usher into the presence of God. And we are blackened by sin. But Jesus' blood makes us white as snow. You walk into the temple proper, and the first thing on the left, you see the menorah, the only light, 
because Jesus is the light of the world. You see on the right side, the table of showbread. He says, I am the bread of life. He is our sustainer. He is our giver of life. At the very back, the last thing you see is, is the altar of incense. The prayer is going up. And it says, Jesus stands right now at the right hand of God, offering up concessions for us, praying for us. They should have seen, when they saw Jesus, this should have said, it's him. It's all about him. This is what happened in the past. And that's why we study the temple. Because we see Jesus. But there's no temple today. It's not a building. But there's one right here. It says we are his temple. He resides within us. When God see, when other people around us see this temple, do they see Jesus? Because it should still be about him. The third thing is all future. Well, we're not going to do temple worship anymore. There's two more temples that are coming. The next thing on God's agenda is the rapture of the church. You probably heard several um, um, messages or, or Jimmy DeYoung or others that have talked about the timeline of God. We've got the rapture of church where, where people are taken out. Christians are taken out. Believers in Christ. And they go, and they they go to the marriage supper of the Lamb. They're spending time with Him. But what happens that shortly following that is a tribulation. God's wrath poured out upon the earth, upon sin, because it just cannot bear it any longer. God cannot bear it any longer. And during that tribulation is temple worship. The Jews will set up a temple, and they will worship in Jerusalem. And this will go on for those seven years. When Christ comes back at the end of seven years, he's going to come back to earth and he'll set up his millennial kingdom. And passages talking about that millennial kingdom says there's going to be temple worship while Christ is here. Now when he comes back, those that are in Christ will be coming back with him. We're going to reign and serve with him. That means either directly or indirectly, each of you are going to have something to do within the temple of God. Pretty cool, huh? It's all future. Sometimes people don't always get excited about that. But it's so close. I don't know if you realize how close it is. Can you go to the last picture? All those things that I showed you are prepared for the temple during the tribulation. They're already made. Every single artifact. These are real pictures. I've seen these. I've seen more. I've seen the table of showbread. They're all ready for worship. They just need the building. The cornerstones for the temple have been cut and prepared. Massive stones ready for the building to go up. The Sanhedrin that names the high priest has already been put into place. They're not going to have, well, um, like in Jesus' day, they weren't the real power on paper. They were kind of the power. The Orthodox uh, today in Israel, 10% of the population, not very much, but they're getting laws put in that match the Old Testament, making a lot of people uncomfortable. But in a parliamentary system, all they got to do is go along with some things for people to get their vote and then put their own little thing in there. They're already in control of who comes in and out of the country. That includes Christians. And it's given a lot of ministries a hard time. 
They're already in control of several cities that they lock down on the Sabbath. And if you're Jewish, they won't allow you in or out because you're not supposed to travel on the Sabbath. They're gaining more and more control. The thing that sets up the tribulation is a peace treaty. For 30 years, Israel has had relative peace. All right, minor things with some small minor groups. But you got groups like the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt that are trying to get revoked the entire um, peace treaty and pull their, and they've requested from parliament, their parliament, that they pull their, their ambassador out of Israel. They do not want relations with them and they're gaining more and more control every day, ever since the revolution that was in Egypt. Turkey has done the same thing. They're becoming very, very hostile towards, towards Israel. People, uh, um, Saudi Arabia is stepping away and starting to say harsh things about, uh, Israel. Um, Iran is openly calling for their destruction. It's close. And you get headlines in the Jerusalem Post that say um, Israel is willing to accept anybody who can guarantee them peace. Not, not Christian articles. Jewish articles. The people are very unstable and they want peace. And they're willing to give almost anything to get it. We're close. So what am I supposed to do about that? No scripture. Study the word of God. Um, there are promises God has yet to fulfill. There are promises that he's given for you and your life in this walk. You know his promises. Is there a great encouragement? You just learn them. Two, we worship God. Um, we'll be doing that for all of eternity. Uh, I'd like to be a little good at it when I get there. So uh, hopefully we practice a little bit now. Draw closer to Him. Um, get excited about what God's doing. Be a part of it. Solomon got excited about what God was doing. And it was contagious. And that's the third thing. Let others know in on it. Because it's still the good news. And uh, time is running out. Um, Sometimes we don't tell others and because of fear, afraid of people say no, afraid we won't have the right answers, um, whatever it may be. But quick thought, what if the person who told you was too afraid? Where would you be? People need to know. The time is running out. It's close. And you go to Israel and you see some of the things that God has been gracious to allow me to see. And you think, he's got to be coming soon. Because they're, they're ready. They're there. The temple is ready to go. 